This is Cardinal Francis George. I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a nonprofit ministry at the forefront of Catholic evangelization, using new media to spread the faith on every continent. Father Barron challenges us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, we come once again to Palm Sunday and the reading of the Passion. The story of Jesus' suffering and death haunted the minds of the first Christians. All the Gospels center around it. They all tend toward it. They all find their fulfillment in it. Somehow this story of the death of Jesus is what it's about. Well, this year, we're privileged to read St. Luke's account of the Passion. A special emphasis in Luke, and each one of the evangelists has a special focus in their account. One of Luke's is Jesus the King in his struggle with the false kingdoms of the world. What we find here in a kind of climactic way is a battle between rival conceptions of power. What does it mean to be a king? What's the nature of true kingship? This story of the Passion in Luke shows us. We hear first that Jesus entered Jerusalem as a king. The way the prophet Zechariah said he would, on the foal of an ass in humility and meekness. But see, mind you, he's coming as a Davidic king. Just as David took possession of Jerusalem, so Jesus now on Palm Sunday takes possession of the holy city. But he doesn't do it in a worldly way, like a warrior full of pomp and display and violence. He doesn't come charging his way into Jerusalem. Notice something, too, an interesting detail. The people swayed and danced and sang as Jesus entered the holy city. Any first century Jew hearing this story would remember something. He'd remember how when King David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, the people sang and swayed and danced. Who's the true Ark? Who's the true Holy of Holies? Well, it's Jesus himself. The people sing, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. That's David arriving, but also it's the Holy of Holies arriving. But now what precisely is the nature of Jesus' kingdom? As the story unfolds, we hear. He sits down to eat with the twelve and announces he will not eat again, listen, until there is fulfillment in the kingdom of God. This act of eating and drinking around the table with Jesus will be the identifying mark of his manner of ordering things. This is the Eucharistic kingdom that he proclaimed and that he embodied. Open table fellowship. I've said many times before, that's so characteristic of Jesus' whole approach. Most of our societies, most of our cities, most of our cultures are predicated upon the opposite. Division, separation, 
domination. Who's up, who's down, who's in, who's out. But Jesus' Eucharistic kingdom is characterized by this inclusive, open table fellowship. It's the ingathering of the tribes of Israel, but now it's the ingathering of all of the tribes of the world in nonviolence, in peace, in inclusive love. That's the nature of the kingdom. But right away, as they seem always to do, the disciples miss the point. Listen. Then an argument broke out among them about which of them should be regarded as the greatest. There it is. There's the counterpoise. There's the foil. There's worldly power on full display. Which one of us is the greatest? How that preoccupies us, friends, in almost every area of life. Whether you're in your, in your family, in business, in the societal relationships, we obsess about who's better, who's higher, which one of us is the greatest. Notice how parents can place this in little kids right from the beginning of their lives. Be the best. I mean, nothing wrong with that in itself, but this sort of competitiveness, that's a mark of the worldly kingdom. But listen how Jesus corrects them. But among you it shall not be so. Rather, let the greatest among you be as the youngest and the leader as the servant. I know we've heard those words a thousand times, but do we ever really take them seriously? Let the greatest among you be as the youngest. That meant as the slave, as the servant. What does it mean to be great? What does it mean to live a great life, a successful life? Well, the world gives you all kinds of categories. Here's Jesus' category. Have you lived as the youngest? Have you lived as the servant? Indeed, now we hear Jesus wants to confer a kingdom on them. He says, I want to make you the judges of the 12 tribes of Israel. But this will be correlated to their willingness to suffer to let go of themselves for the sake of the other. That's the mark of the true judge of Israel. He says, the kings of the Gentiles. Think now of all of our kings in the political sense, cultural sense, whatever sense. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over their inferiors. They act according to what St. Augustine would later call the libido dominandi, the lust to dominate. Again, watch for that in every aspect of life. The lust to dominate is a basic motivation. But not in Jesus' kingdom. It's the opposite. It's the libido, if you want, servandi. It's the, it's the lust, the desire to serve. Then we hear how Jesus turns to Simon, to Peter, the leader of the disciples. He says, that Satan, Hosatanas, the accuser, has asked to sift all of them like wheat. Extraordinary line, isn't it? It's a haunting line because whenever Jesus addresses Peter, it's as though he's addressing the entire church up and down the ages. The power of the church, Jesus' community, which is meant to be the kingdom, will always be challenged by that worldly power which is predicated upon the satanic. And I just alluded to it. Hosatanas means the accuser. How much of worldly power is predicated upon accusation? 
Who's to blame? See, why do we love to accuse each other? Because it makes us feel better about ourselves. If I can gossip about you, I can put you down publicly. It puts me up by comparison. Now, that's true of, of kids on the playground. It's true at the highest geopolitical level, too. And we all know it, don't we? Worldly power is often satanic in form, based upon accusation. Jesus is saying to Peter, and thereby to all of the popes up and down the centuries, I'd say to all of the church up and down the centuries, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat. We will always be tempted by these worldly forms of power. What kind of kingdom do we represent? What kind of king is Christ? Now, this will cost. What I mean is the establishment of Christ's kingdom will cost. Why? Because the powers of the world don't just dry up and blow away. And this is why Jesus at the Last Supper prepares them for a struggle. Listen. One who has a money bag should take it. One who does not have a sword should buy one. Now, mind you, it's not a repudiation of his earlier statements on trust and nonviolence. When he first sent them out, remember he said, don't take a money bag and, and trust in the Lord. And the Sermon on the Mount, he clearly says, don't walk the way of violence, but of nonviolence. So what gives here when he says, well, now take a money person, now bring a sword? I think what this is, is a symbolic evocation of the fact that they will have to fight. The church of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus, predicated upon love, nonviolence, inclusion, non-accusation, that kingdom will always fight alternate kingdoms. That's why the church is referred to as the Ecclesia Militans, the fighting church. He's telling his disciples now, and us, see, we're the successors of, of these disciples. He's telling them and us, you have to be ready to fight. Notice, too, now, as the story unfolds, we've now moved from the Last Supper into the Garden of Gethsemane. The worldly kingdoms, listen, especially when they're challenged by the kingdom of God, will show their true colors. The Jewish temple guard come out with swords and clubs. They come out with the weapons of the world in order to arrest Jesus. But notice how he responds, not with answering violence, but with forgiveness and healing. He heals the ear of, of the uh, high priest slave. Look next, the story of Peter in the high priest's courtyard, as well as the account of the Sanhedrin, the account of Herod's court. What do they all show? They all show the satanic powers at work, accusation, scapegoating, blaming. So in the high priest's courtyard, they start to accuse Peter. He was with Jesus. Look how his accent gives him away. Scapegoating. Identify the victim. Notice the Sanhedrin. It says they rose as one. They were united in their common hatred of Jesus. Herod's court. He's made into a kind of buffoon. And they laugh at him and mock him. But Jesus' path is the path of inclusive love and forgiveness. And so it stands athwart all these forms of scapegoating. You know, discipleship is a very strong theme throughout Luke's gospel. What it comes down to, of course, is following Jesus. 
is coming after the king. That story of Simon of Cyrene that so haunts the Christian imagination is all about the cost of discipleship. To follow the true king means to take up one's cross, as Simon does here, and walk with him in suffering love. How many ambitious people in the worldly sense want to be closely associated with the king, whoever that king is, political king, uh, economic uh, business leader, whoever it is. But see, look what association with the true king brings. It means you're walking with him in suffering love. I love the supreme irony of the soldiers who, as they crucified Jesus, put a mocking sign over the cross. This is the king of the Jews. They meant that as kind of a joke. But see, where are Pilate's successors today? Where is Caesar's successor today? They're nowhere to be found. They're lost in the dust of history. But the successor of Peter, the vicar of Christ, you can go to Rome right now and you can see him. The soldiers were announcing what they thought was the end of Jesus' kingdom. In fact, they were announcing the end of their kingdom and all kingdoms made in its image. The good thief gets it, doesn't he? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That doesn't make any sense at all on worldly terms. Jesus is not coming into any kind of worldly kingdom. He's dying at the hands of his enemies. But see, the good thief gets it as we are meant to get it. The true kingdom is this kingdom of love, which is embodied in the cross. And he knows that this very day he can enter into that kingdom if he walks the path of forgiving love. Amen. Today you'll be with me in paradise, says the Lord. And he says the same thing to us. We who are meant to embrace this path of kingship. And God bless you. I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love. Father Robert Barron is combating the crisis of faith in our culture. Father Barron's expanded website can deepen your faith, give you new insights into scriptures, and help you become a better Christian. Go to wordonfire.org and tap into Father Barron's compelling videos, sermons, articles, and much more. Wordonfire.org. Connect with one of the Catholic Church's best messengers every day, everywhere.